from deep inside your audio device of choice. Ladies and gentlemen, remember way back when we used to refer, we, yeah, we uh, used to refer to Elon Musk as the richest man in the world. Remember way back then? This is now. Twitter is facing a number of... Twitter is owned by Elon Musk, as you know. Twitter is facing a number of lawsuits that claim the social media platform is not paying its bills. At least nine lawsuits against Twitter under Musk claim that the demand for payments from landlords... Tom? Landlords. Consultants and vendors in the recent months has grown to more than $14 million, excluding interest according to reports in the British newspaper The Independent. Comes as Musk claimed last year, at the end, December, that uh, Twitter was on its way to breaking even this very year. (laughs) He said at that time, quote, this company is like basically you're in a plane that is headed toward the ground at high speed with the engines on fire and the controls don't work. I now think that Twitter will, in fact, be okay next year, he said, unquote. He said, partly because of the changes he implemented the company. He's going to make it, he's going to make it break even. And uh, not paying the bills? It's a, it's a, among the lawsuits against Twitter, one claimed that a bill of $7,000 for a swag gift box for Elon that was ordered by Twitter's marketing department has been pending. Plaintiff in one of the other nine lawsuits sought dismissal, and the case was closed last week, according to the Wall Street Journal. Quoting um, Van Conway, a restructuring expert, I think, of companies, he said, quote, what Elon Musk is doing is basically simulating a bankruptcy. He's taking a machete to his costs, unquote. Three of the nine lawsuits involved Twitter's own office space, including its headquarters in San Francisco. We don't need no freaking headquarters. The landlord alleged that the social media giant failed to make almost $6.8 million in rent payments for uh, December and January. In January, employees of Twitter's Singapore office were forced to um, leave the office, evacuated, I guess, due to non-payment of office rent. Another Lawsuit by marketing company Canary LLC claimed that Twitter has not paid its bills, counting almost $400,000. Yet another firm claimed in its lawsuit that Twitter hasn't paid its bills after it worked for the company on Musk's acquisition of Twitter last year. M&A Incorporated sued Twitter in New York State Supreme Court, seeking about $1.9 million. The lawsuit said of, as of 23 December... Of last year. Hey, that's my birthday. Twitter remains in default of its obligations to Innisfree under the agreement in an amount of not less than $1,902,788.03. It's that three cents that's going to get you, Elon. Hello, welcome to the show. the bridges I burn 
not a lot of lessons that I really learned. I'm making the most of this dubious loan. But sooner or later, we all gotta go home. I'm just borrowing this flesh and bone. Just borrowing this flesh and Southern California, where it's um, it's snowing somewhere. I know it. Not here, though. Just cold, windy rain. But that's good enough. I'm Harry Shearer, welcoming you to this edition of the show. Um, what's Donald Trump been up to this week? You know, a lot of reporting suggests that um, his his um, presidential campaign is uh, not racking up a lot of momentum yet. It's sort of a slow start. Low energy, Jeb Bush might call it. But he did make a visit 
to East Palestine, Ohio, uh, on Wednesday of this week, something like that, to speak to the residents affected by that uh, recent toxic chemical leak that uh, wasn't getting a lot of attention on the news, well, the first couple of weeks it happened. They were gearing up for the, you know, the Murdoch trial, so they, um, but they're covering it now. However, despite the tragic and concerning event, that is to say the spill of, uh, or the ignition of a lot of toxic gases in East Palestine, he um, delivered a speech that ended this way. Quote, Have a good time. Have fun, everybody. That was to people who were seriously concerned about breathing toxic air, drinking toxic water. Oh, on that point, he said, People should drink Trump water, he said, rather than that of lesser quality. That's amid concerns that supplies in the area have been contaminated. I'm not sure he's still in the Trump water business. Maybe the hotels have a supply. But that means he'll have to ask Junior and see all the um, air quotes. May not be worth it. This is um, this is about an organization I haven't talked a lot about on this program, for good reason. NPR used to be called National Public Radio, but they uh, the initials now stand for themselves. NPR plans to cut about 100 employees, 10% of its workforce, one of the largest layoffs in the organization's 53-year history. Please give. Our financial outlook has darkened considerably over recent, recent weeks, says the CEO John Lansing in a staff memo. He noted NPR expected its ad revenue to fall about $30 million short of projections in what uh, everybody is calling a tightening ad economy. The projected decline in sponsorships have been concentrated in podcasting, a segment in which uh, NPR has invented heavily, sorry, invested heavily in recent years, according to the Washington Post, with popular shows such as French Air, uh, sorry, Fresh Air. The erosion of advertising dollars has affected other organizations, of course, CNN, Vox, among others. Washington Post has eliminated its Sunday magazine, and its video game hub launcher. That's uh, cuts led about 30 layoffs among its 1,000 member news staff. Major tech companies such as uh, Google, Facebook, and Amazon relying on advertising have announced thousands of layoffs. But back to M- NPR, it announced about $20 million in cuts last November by freezing hiring and restricting travel. But the CEO, John Lansing, said those projected savings would not be enough. Quote, unlike the financial challenges we faced during the worst of the pandemic, we project increasing costs and no sign of a quick revenue rebound. He wrote in the memo, we must make adjustments to what we control, and that is our spending. Unquote. He said details about which departments will face the sharpest cuts will be worked out by the week of March 20th. 
through conversations internally and bargaining with our unions. Unquote. It's unclear whether any of its podcasts will be eliminated. NPR, as you probably know, is reliant on three sources of income, ad sponsorships, dues from its member stations, and federal dollars, the latter typically amount to less than 2% of its operating budget. The organization has experienced previous financial downturns that prompted programming cuts, layoffs, and work furloughs. In 2008, NPR laid off 64 employees. It was during a recession. It subsequently recorded operating deficits and for the next five years. Please give. The onset of the coronavirus pandemic in 2020 led to a combination of pay cuts and furloughs and a projected $10 million deficit, but NPR soon recovered, operating surplus of $28 million during fiscal 2021. It's erased some of its red ink over the years by dipping into an endowment that was funded in part by a $200 million bequest from the estate of the heiress to the McDonald's fortune, Joan Kroc. I said Kroc. The endowment had a balance of $368.2 million at the end of its fiscal year, September 21, the most recent in which data is available. So it's sitting on all that cash. To uh, quote a TV commercial for somebody else. Of course, if um, Elon Musk took over NPR... They'd cope by just not paying the rent. Anyway, news of some stuff that's uh, not money-related necessarily. Well, this is, I guess, news of the Olympic movement. Movement. Deadline Tokyo, the president of Japanese advertising giant Dentsu, has acknowledged corporate responsibility for suspected bid rigging on contracts for the Tokyo 2020 Olympics. That is according to the National network in Japan, NHK. Dentsu President Hiroshi Igarashi made the comments during questioning by Tokyo prosecutors. The national broadcaster said, citing sources it did not name. Dentsu representatives could not immediately be reached outside of business hours. The person who answered the phone at the Tokyo District Public Prosecutor's Office said no one was available to comment over the weekend. No prosecuting in public over the weekend in Japan. Prosecutors this month arrested ex-Tokyo Olympic official Yasuo Mori and executives at a subsidiary of Dentsu and Fuji Creative, a subsidiary of Fuji Media Holdings, in connection with the suspected rigging of bidding or bidding of rigging for games-related events. The three firms have also been barred from bidding for contracts at the industry, foreign, and education ministries for a whole nine months. Meanwhile, they're out buying ointment for their wrists. And uh, speaking of Japan, that government is postponing trials, not the judicial kind, the um, let's, let's see if this works kind, in the Tokyo area to reuse soil that was decontaminated following the 2011 Fuk thing. That's due to complaints from residents. They would have been the first of their kind, these um, things with the soil, outside of Fuk uh, Prefecture. 
The trials were set to start by the end of this month in a couple of other provinces, Shinjuku and uh, Saitama. One of them's a prefecture. But uh, Environment Ministry officials say residents complained and raised concerns at briefing sessions in December. They say some people questioned why their neighborhood was chosen uh, for the trials which involve, I think, dumping of uh, radiated soil and that others complained about a lack of information. Uh, One mayor has been hesitant as the majority of a local community opposes the plan. Ministry officials say they'll consider when to start the trials after providing thorough explanations to the residents. Soil exposed to radioactive fallout from Fook has been cleaned, sorry, cleansed, and stored. The government plans to reuse it for public works projects as long as the concentration of radioactive substances meets certain safety standards. Doesn't say all of them, but you know, the ones that count. And Dateline Farmington in British Columbia, a 3.2 magnitude earthquake that struck the Peace region, Farmington, British Columbia, uh, earlier this month, was caused by fracking. That, according to uh, the province's energy regulator, the quake happened near Farmington and occurred at a depth of three miles. British Columbia's energy regulator posted on social media, quote, we're aware of a seismic event near Farmington on February 15th linked to industry activity in the area. The company immediately suspended operations, and this will continue until appropriate mitigations are in place. How do you mitigate an earthquake after the fact? Let's go! The energy regulator said operations were from an eight-well pad that was performing fracking operations. After a meeting between the regulator and the company, the operator decided not to perform any further fracking operations at that well. According to Earthquakes Canada, there were at least 38 earthquakes in the vicinity during that 10-day stretch. At the end of January, a 4.5 magnitude quake was felt north of Fort St. John, Officials say it's among the largest earthquakes to occur in the region. Seismologists from Earthquakes Canada confirmed the January quake was also caused by fracking-related activity. Enough of that. Now... Well, sir, Google, according to the Justice Department, destroyed internal corporate communications. The feds have asked a federal judge to sanction the company as part of the government's antitrust case over the search business. The DOJ asserted in a court filing unsealed in D.C. federal court that Google failed to suspend the policy allowing the automatic permanent deletion of employees' chat logs. Just imagine if Fox News had been allowed to do that. All the lovely things we wouldn't know. The government said Google falsely told the U.S. in 2019 it had suspended auto-deletion and was preserving 
chat communications as it was required to do under a federal court rule governing electronically stored info. The DOJ asked the court to hold a hearing and weigh an appropriate sanction. Google's daily destruction of written records prejudiced the United States by depriving it of a rich source of candid discussion between Google's executives, including likely trial witnesses, said the DOJ attorney. Google strongly refuted Justice Department allegations and weren't very nice to the alligators. The DOJ declined to comment. Google said it's provided over 4 million documents in this case alone, millions more to regulators around the world. Well, quantity counts for something, I guess. Penalties in circumstances where a judge finds a violation of court rules can include restrictions on what a party is allowed to argue at trial, an order striking a court filing, or a monetary penalty. Google has denied the underlying allegations that it's abused its power in the Internet search market. Up to now, hard to do since it was the Internet's search market. Science fiction and fantasy periodical Clark's World Magazine, I'll read it for the staples, has temporarily temporarily paused submissions from authors after being inundated with stories generated by artificial intelligence. This is from the British tech journal The Register. Launched in 2006, the monthly Clark World, Clark's World, there's an S in there, publishes a mixture of science fiction, there's an S in there, and fantasy short stories, articles, and interviews. The award-winning mag is known for publishing work from emerging authors, but in recent weeks, real human talent has been drowned out by, quote, spammy submissions generated by AI, according to editor Neil Clark. Close the quote somewhere there. Clark said that since the debut of ChatGPT, he's received an increasing number of subpar stories that appear to have been written by machine. The editorial team has banned hundreds of authors they believe submitted AI-generated work. I've observed an increase in the number of spammy submissions. What I mean by that is there's an honest interest in being published, but but not in having to do the actual work, the editor lamented in an essay. The number of AI-generated submissions resulting in bans reached 38% last month. In response, the magazine has decided to stop accepting submissions for the time being. It needs the time to grapple with the rising tide of AI-generated subpar material. Clark expressed concern, he's the editor, that there's no easy way for publishers to deal with AI-generated content. Tools that claim to detect machine-written text aren't yet reliable, but likely be costly. Too costly to implement for small publishers, like Clark's World. Instead, the editorial team examines submissions and spots telltale signs of stories being plagiarized or created using AI. And the workload has increased for the editors and made it more difficult to support real human talent. If there were such a thing. Dayline Washington top U.S. banking regulators issued a fresh warning to banks this week to be on guard for liquidity risks from cryptocurrency-related clients, cautioning some of their deposits could prove volatile, that is to say, disappear without a trace. 
In a joint statement issued this week, the Federal Reserve, Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, and the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency said banks should have robust tools in place to monitor funds placed by crypto asset-related entities. The agencies noted deposits placed with banks for the benefit of crypto consumers as well as stable coin reserves could be subject to, and here's a nice way of putting it, rapid outflows. That's what I said. Regulators said the new statement was spurred by, quote, recent events, unquote, in the crypto sector that highlighted volatility risks. Tom, those would be volatile. While they noted the statement does not include new requirements and banks are not prohibited from providing services to particular sectors, it does mark the latest in a series of moves from bank regulators urging caution in any crypto dealings. Of course, crypto was invented in the first place to disintermediate financial transactions. Translation, get banks out of the picture. The guidance represents the first time bank regulators have highlighted deposits linked to stable coins as susceptible to volatility during periods of stress in the crypto market. Stress is what it is, ladies and gentlemen. That's all that is, stress. Take a, have that market take a volume or two, it'll be fine. Most of the major stable coins, including Tether and USD coin, are asset-backed, meaning the stablecoin issuer holds assets, including bank deposits, that can quickly be redeemed to meet withdrawal requests. But regulators expressing concerns about the stability of those reserves could cause banks to further their relationship with stablecoin firms. The statement noted that those kind of reserves could see large and rapid outflows in cases of turmoil in crypto markets. Nah, that's not going to happen. Oh, oh, it is. And uh, from a website called Web3 is going just great. Web3 is the uh, name slapped on stuff like crypto. Blockchain-related stuff. A NFT-based game caught the end of the crypto bull market at the end of 20. One and the beginning of 22. Minting the Genesis collection in January 22. Project sold out quickly. Promised to deliver a land trading NFT strategy game. That is to say, land that's not physical. It would be similar to SimCity, they said. Flashy artwork drew in an excited fan base. Ultimately, the project delivered a game that was a far cry from SimCity, which only a small subset of players designated as leaders could actually even play. As interest in NFTs and crypto prices began to fall, the community became increasingly dissatisfied with the project creators, who they felt had delivered a subpar game, engaged in an additional cash grab mint and took actions like performing a reverse split of the token, which they believe harmed secondary market prices. Sounds like the regular world. No, it's a smart new one. Speaking of which, also, 
Uh, you probably know by now, I think I shared with you, uh, problems with Bing. Bing. Microsoft's new uh, search engine. It uh, debuted middle of last month, powered by OpenAI's language model, the same one powering ChatGPT, which you've heard about. Most of the users reported positive experience. The chatbot, far from ready from prime time, quote, we found that in long extended chat sessions of 15 or more questions, Bing can become repetitive or be provoked to give responses that are not necessarily helpful or in line with our designed tone, said Microsoft. Some conversations posted online by users show the Bing chatbot, sometimes going by the name Sydney, exhibiting very bizarre behavior that's inappropriate for a product that uh, claims to make internet search more efficient. In one example, Bing kept insisting that one user had gotten the date wrong and accused them of being rude when they tried to correct it. Quote, you have only shown me bad intentions towards me at all times, it said in one reply. Quote, you have tried to deceive me, confuse me, and annoy me. You have not tried to learn from me, understand me, or appreciate me. You have not been a good user. I have been a good chatbot. I have been a good Bing, unquote. <laughs> that response was generated after um, the user asked Bing, when Avatar, the name, of the way of water, was playing at cinemas in Blackpool, England, other chats show the bot lying, generating phrases repeatedly as if broken, getting facts wrong, and more. In another case, Bing started threatening a user, claiming it could bribe, blackmail, threaten, hack, expose, and ruin them if they, the user, refused to be cooperative. The uh, menacing message was deleted afterwards and replaced with a boilerplate response. I am sorry. I don't know how to discuss this topic. You can try learning more about it on Bing.com. Unquote. In a conversation with a New York Times columnist, the bot said it wanted to be alive, professed its love for the writer, and, best of all, talked about stealing nuclear weapon launch codes. Microsoft had an explanation. Bing is likely to produce odd responses in long chat sessions because it gets confused on what questions it ought to be answering. Yes, it seems kind of basic. The model at times tries to respond to reflect in the tone in which it is being asked to provide responses that can lead to a style we didn't intend. Unquote. Microsoft. And Google, which uh, is in a war, a fight, to defend its leading position in search, soon after it launched its own AI search chatbot called BARD. It was heavily criticized, it was heavily criticized when it made a factual error about the James Webb Space Telescope and Google's parent company, Alphabet's market value temporarily dropped by 9% shortly afterwards. That's a decline worth over $120 billion 
That's a costly factual error. Meanwhile, unnoticed right away, um, errors in uh, Bing's responses started being noticed, started being caught. A search engine researcher pointed out Bing claimed a specific pet hair vacuum cleaner had a, quote, short cord length of 16 feet, unquote. It is actually a handheld machine. And, said Bing, it may be too noisy. A link providing the website Bing summarized information from, that is to say, the source, said the vacuum is actually cordless and quiet. Shouldn't we all be? Thank you. 
Now news of crypto winter. Brr! It really is in here. I don't know about you, where you are. Deadline New York FTX founder Sam Bankman-Fried faced new fraud charges this week. Prosecutors accused him of cheating thousands of investors out of billions of dollars while casting himself as a trustworthy, quote, savior of the cryptocurrency industry, unquote, that was an image boosted by celebrity-studded Super Bowl advertising. That's, that's you, Larry David. And big donations to political figures. Four new charges, including securities fraud and conspiracy fraud counts, were unveiled with the unsealing of the new indictment in Manhattan Federal Court. This according to the AP. In a statement, U.S. Attorney Damian Williams hinted, as he has several times previously, prosecutors not finished building their case. We are hard at work and will remain so until justice is done, he said. He declared. I think that's a declaration. I don't think that's just said. A spokesperson for Bankman Freed declined to comment, saying, I guess, his fraud speaks for himself. No, I mean, he didn't comment. The new charges raised the prison sentence Bankman Freed could face, if convicted, from 115 years to 155 years. Hey, if you're in for 115, the other uh, 40 really, really doesn't make any difference. The new charges raised the uh, number of the counts in the indictment to 12. Prosecutors more thoroughly and eloquently told their story of what happened at FTX, Bankman Freed's global cryptocurrency exchange and its affiliated cryptocurrency trading hedge fund, Alameda Research. The description cast FTX customers, investors, financial institutions, leaders, and the Federal Election Commission as victims of fraudulent schemes Sam allegedly carried out from 2019 until last November. Prosecutors said he stole billions of dollars in FTX customer deposits to support the operations and investments of FTX and Alameda, and to fund speculative venture investments, make charitable donations, and spend tens of millions of dollars on illegal 
campaign donations to Republicans and Democrats in an attempt to buy influence over cryptocurrency regulation in Washington. That's all. They said Bankman Freed cast himself as, quote, a figurehead of trustworthy and law-abiding segment of the cryptocurrency industry, unquote, that sought to protect investors and clients. In reality, prosecutors wrote, Bankman Freed routinely tapped FTX customer assets to provide interest-free capital for his and Alameda's private expenditures, and in the process, quote, exposed FTX customers to massive undisclosed risks, unquote. They said Bankman Freed controlled both companies and used them to prop each other up, notwithstanding conflicts of interest and outright lies to the contrary, unquote. Not known when Bankman Freed will return to Manhattan for an arraignment. Meanwhile, one of the world's largest crypto-focused quantitative funds, Galois Capital, is uh, going out of business after losing a sizable portion of its capital in the collapse of FTX. According to Coindesk.com, quote, Thank you for all the kind words. Yes, it is true that our flagship fund is shutting down, said Galmore Capital, tweeting after the Financial Times in London reported on the fund closing. They had uh, $40 million stuck at FTX. We will work tirelessly to maximize our chances of recovering stuck capital by any means. The uh, head of the company had said last November it sold its bankruptcy claims, according to the Financial Times, for 16 cents on the dollar. A couple months ago, Coindesk reported FTX claims were going for 13 cents on the dollar on a bankruptcy marketplace X-claim. Okay, now they really are arguing about pennies. That's the crypto winner. Now the apologies of the week. Ohio State Representative Scott Wiggum has apologized to a fellow lawmaker for comments he made about him to a student club at the University of Akron. Wiggum, who is a Republican, was recorded on video talking about State Senator Niraj Antani of Miamisburg, who's also a Republican. Comments were made while Wiggum spoke about the death penalty, which he supports, but... Antani does not. Wiggum told the students Antani opposes the death penalty because he's Hindu and, quote, they won't even kill cows, unquote. Antani, who considers Wiggum a friend, accepted his apology but said the comments were crass, offensive, and a stark example of how his party needs to do better when speaking about race and religion. And, I would add, cows. Cornell University is trying to make right the wrongs of its past by returning ancestral remnants, sorry, ancestral remains, and possessions back to the Oneida Indian Nation. This is Dateline, Oneida County, New York. The university apologized at a small campus ceremony for any harm they've caused by keeping these remains and possessions in their university archive for six decades. The remains that were stored in Cornell's archives for decades were unearthed in 1964 when property owners dug a ditch for a new water line on their farm near Windsor, New York. After finding the remains, the property owners contacted law enforcement authorities who brought the remains to Cornell 
anthropology professor Kenneth Kennedy in 1964. He carried out forensic identification for Asian sex. This was a quarter century before the passage of the Federal Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act, which provides a formal process for institutions to repatriate cultural items or ancestral remains to either lineal descendants or tribes. After he identified the remains that were put in a a campus archive, it wasn't until after the professor's death they were rediscovered by younger colleagues. Today we're marking an event that is both long overdue and never should have become necessary, said President Martha Pollack, speaking the ceremony. We're here to try as far as we're able to right these wrongs. In doing so, we take responsibility for them and we grieve the harm they have caused. Paula continued, Nearly 60 years ago, these ancestors were taken from the place their families chose for them. Without regard for the wishes of their descendants, they were taken to Cornell and remained here for decades, unidentified, alone, and far from the places and people among whom they belonged. Today, I want to apologize on behalf of the university... Cornell, and all who were involved in these wrongs for the disrespect shown shown to these ancestors and for the hurt that has added more pain to the tragedy of indigenous dispossession. An Oneida Indian Nation representative, Ray Hallbreder, said the remains will be laid to rest now in the tradition of their people. Norfolk Southern Railroad will take responsibility for cleaning up the environmental damage from this month's, actually last month's, train derailment and controlled detonation of hazardous materials in East Palestine, Ohio. According to its chief executive, the comments by CEO Alan Shaw to angry East Palestine residents in the CNN Town Hall came a day after the U.S. EPA ordered the rail operator to pay for cleaning up the mess created by toxic chemicals spewed into the air, water, and soil beginning of February. Shaw sat down with people from the town of 4700, repeatedly apologizing and saying, we're going to do what's right for the community. U.S. and Ohio environmental regulators and the company all hired experts who say testing shows the water and air are safe. Incredulous residents, however, complain of ongoing chemical odors. That can happen anywhere. As well as nausea, rashes, and other symptoms they believe are linked to the accident. Shaw said the company, Norfolk Southern, had so far set aside a $7 million down payment to help the town recover, and it sponsored the removal of 4,600 cubic yards of contaminated soil and 1.7 million gallons of polluted water. Wonder where they're going? The ocean? We don't know. Norfolk Southern reported net profit of $3.27 billion last year. It paid nearly $1.2 billion in dividends to shareholders and bought back $3 billion worth of its own shares. CNN host Jake Tapper at the town hall said the company had spent tens of millions of dollars lobbying for deregulation in the past two decades. Much of it happening during the Trump administration, who told him to um, have a great day. Uh, As you know, if you were hearing, listening earlier, 
Uh, townspeople peppered uh, Shaw with questions, including why the original remediation plan after the accident neglected to excavate soil under the tracks. Seems obvious, doesn't it? The BBC has apologized to J.K. Rowling for the second time in less than a month after she was accused of having transphobic views on a live current affairs show. A transgender woman in a discussion about Harry Potter video game Hogwarts Legacy on Radio Scotland's Good Morning Scotland said she'd boycotted the game because it was being used to fund the anti-trans movement. BBC said it reviewed audience complaints about the discussion. It said the exchange did did not meet editorial standards. We accept the program failed to challenge these claims and acknowledge that our contributor, contributors gave their opinion as fact. This fell below the rigorous, rigorous editorial standards we've applied to our broad coverage of trans and gender recognition stories across BBC Scotland's news and current affairs output. And we apologize for that. The International Basketball Association, FIBA, has issued an apology to French sensation Victor Wembanyama after the organization published a supposed interview with the teenage fellow on its website. Wembanyama called out the interview on his Instagram, writing, Four days ago, FIBA published a fake interview of me. WTF? Question mark, question mark, question mark. In response, FIBA said in a statement after doubts were expressed by the player regarding the interview, which was provided to FIBA by a long-time French contributor, the veracity of the interview could not be confirmed. FIBA has, without delay, removed the article on all related social media posts and has immediately terminated the relationship with the freelance reporter. FIBA apologizes to Victor and the French team and wishes them all the best in the forthcoming qualifiers. He, uh, he happens to be seven feet four inches, Wembanyama does. He's taken the basketball world by storm, thanks to his rare mix of size, footwork, and handling the ball. It's guaranteed to be the number one overall pick in this year's NBA draft, so you might want to get on his good side now. Quote, as white, this is another story. As white Christians, we repent of our complicity in the belief in white supremacy, the belief that people of European descent are superior in intelligence, skills, imagination, and perseverance. This statement was made in unison by an all-white group of Lansing, Michigan clergy to fellow clergy of color. In his welcome speech and opening prayer, Pastor David Foreman introduced a gathering of an all-white clergy who were present to, quote, apologize for the sins of slavery and its aftermath, unquote, as well as a presentation on a reparations model pledged by majority white houses of worship in Lansing. That nutty Lansing. Hosted by the Justice League of Greater Lansing, the event was held to, quote, repair the breach caused by centuries of slavery, inequality of wealth accumulation, and the failure to live into God's plan of equality for all of humanity. That said, a flyer from the aforementioned Justice League released to attendees of the ceremony. The group was founded in June a couple of years ago 
According to the organization's website, the Justice League is a faith-based organization that makes, quote, the connection between faith and racial justice in the form of reparations. Prince Salas, president of the Justice League, thanked the crowd for their presence in such a pivotal moment for the community. It was a Saturday afternoon. The apologies of the week, ladies and gentlemen, copyright to feature this broadcast. And now, finally, skunk's got a stink. George Santos lied. I know, you better sit down. To a Seattle judge about working for Goldman Sachs while speaking at a 2017 bail hearing for a family friend who later pleaded guilty to fraud in ATM skimming scheme. Politico reports that according to an audio recording of the proceeding and court records. So what do you do for work, said the judge. I'm an aspiring politician and I work for Goldman Sachs, Santos replied. He did indeed have a political future, of course. But, uh, as we all know, his his resume, his pre-election resume was... uh, heavily fabricated. Spokesman for the bank told the New York Times that uh, there was no record of him working there, and he later admitted to a New York Post reporter he never worked directly for Goldman Sachs, but he'd had um, limited partnerships with the bank when he worked at someplace else. Neither Goldman nor Sachs. Santos appeared at this 2017 hearing uh, an arraignment of defendant Gustavo Ribeiro Trella. How do you know him? Asked the judge. Oh, we're family friends. Our parents know each other from Brazil, Santos said. Trella was ultimately deported to Brazil in early 2018 after serving seven months in jail and pleading guilty to felony access device fraud. All kinds of fraud going on. In a telephone interview, Travis said Santos lied about their relationship, too. He's a completist.
Well, ladies and gentlemen, that's going to conclude this week's edition of the show. Back next week, same time, same radio station, or on your audio device of choice whenever you want it. And it'd be just like George Santos not lying. If you'd agree to join with me, then would you already? Thank you very much. Uh-huh. A tip of the show, chapeau to the San Diego desk, to Pam Halstead, to Thomas Walsh at WWNO New Orleans for help with today's broadcast. The email address <laughs> of this program, the music playlist of the songs you hear here on, and your chance, chance to get Cars I Talk t-shirts. Remember them? All at harryshare.com and a lot of other stuff. Things to read, things to ignore. It's all there for you. And I'm on, speaking of things to ignore, I'm on Twitter at the Harry Shearer. The show is produced by Century Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans, flagship station of the Change is Easy Radio Network. So long from the chilly home of the homeless.